Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Simply not enough funding. Health chiefs defend 1.5 billion euro overspend at the Oireachtas Health Committee. The notion that we're just a complete uh, bunch of wasters with public money, I absolutely reject that. The UN calls for an immediate ceasefire to end the epic suffering in Gaza. We get the opinion of a conflict resolution specialist who's worked in the region. And is gender equality on the decline in Ireland? A new survey thinks so. We'll discuss that and more later on. Tonight, a war of words. Israeli diplomats have called for the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to resign after he suggested the Hamas attack on Israel did not happen in a vacuum. Earlier, I caught up with journalist Hannah McCarthy in Jerusalem. I asked her um, about this particular war of words. Well, Antonio Guterres was basically referencing, you know, the kind of long-standing occupation of Palestine, and the response from Israel was quite strong. They called for the resignation of Antonio Guterres, um, which it's kind of, you know, the kind of strongest condemnation you can really have um, of a UN chief. Uh, there's behind the scenes. There's a particularly um, strong battle going on between Israel and the UN over the delivery of fuel into Gaza at the moment. Uh, we've seen widespread reports over the weekend about hospitals uh, running out of fuel. Some already have, some will in the next 24 hours. Uh, and we've also heard UNRWA, the UN agency responsible for Palestinian refugees, saying that they're about to run out of fuel uh, by uh, Wednesday night. Uh, Israel is opposed to this. Uh, it's on the basis that it says uh, it could allow fuel for uh, Hamas to con continue to launch rockets from the Gaza Strip, which it has continued to do today. And it is one of the reasons why uh, aid trucks weren't allowed to uh, cross over the Rafah crossing uh, today from Egypt into Gaza. But indeed, a very precarious humanitarian situation right now. UNRWA, as you say, issuing a warning that it may have to close its operations there because of a lack of fuel. Uh, according to the health ministry in Gaza, 700 people were killed in the past 24 hours. The IDF has said that it carried out 400. Um, it struck 400, what it's calling terror targets, um, on Gaza. Uh, it's a situation that is unrelenting right now. I mean, the latest reports are that 50% uh, of all residential buildings in the Gaza Strip uh, have been damaged by airstrikes. Uh, 1.4 million people uh, are homeless. At the same time, today, Hamas were still firing rockets. So um, we're not necessarily seeing 
clear evidence that Hamas's capabilities have been weakened uh, compared with the huge civilian casualties we've seen coming out of Gaza. Uh, so uh, there's definitely kind of rising uh, voices. You know, we see more comments coming from uh, the White House, um, you know, talking about decreasing the, the loss of life uh, among civilians uh, and the need for caution, particularly um, in terms of a land invasion. Uh, earlier, uh, one of two hostages freed by Hamas gave a press conference. How is the release of these hostages, that's two um, elderly hostages freed uh, last night um, out of four, but out of there's more than 200 still being held in Gaza. How is it being received in Israel? Um, I think there's a slightly polarised response um, to the freeing of the hostages, particularly because um, one of the kind of elderly Israeli women, uh, Yosheved Lifshitz, uh, gave a press briefing today uh, and she kind of described her experience of being violently uh, kidnapped by Hamas, uh, taken across the border um, to Gaza. And she also then describes that she was, you know, she described uh, herself as being humanely treated. She was given food, um, medical care. You know, she ate the same food as Hamas militants. Uh, and I think there's been a kind of divided response to this where, you know, as we've seen from in, in much of the kind of coverage or reaction to this uh, conflict, uh, it's been polarized with some people kind of only highlighting the fact that she said she was treated humanely, while other people only talking about the fact that she said she was you know, violently assaulted. Um, you know, I, I would note, you know, her husband is still uh, in detention in, in Gaza. Um, and again, she has just be released from um, a two week long hostage situation. Uh, so obviously we do have to kind of, you know, be sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. Hannah McCarthy, Irish journalist uh, joining us tonight from Israel. Thank you for that. Thanks for the very latest. Well, joining me in studio to discuss this further is Fine Gael Senator Martin Conway, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly and Oliver McTiernan also joined us, joins us, an experienced mediator and respected commentator on Middle East affairs. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, Martin, I want to come to you first on this uh, diminishing uh, humanitarian situation in Gaza and the crisis indeed that has been unfolding there. At this point, there's also Irish-Palestinian uh, citizens in, in Gaza who are trying to get out. They are trapped there. Uh, uh, and they talk about the lack of fuel, the lack of water, the lack of food. Uh, Dublin father Ibrahim Alaha, who is, is trapped there with his wife, Hamida, and their three children, among several uh, Irish-Palestinian citizens there. What efforts are being made by the Department of Foreign Affairs to get them out of the region? No, well, my understanding is that the Department of Foreign Affairs is working uh, very hard to uh, channel a way uh, to get any Irish citizen who's uh, caught up in this, uh, who wishes to to to, to get out uh, to facilitate that, um, I've no doubt that um, you know everything has been done that is possible uh, uh, to get uh, any Irish citizen out, and I just sincerely hope uh, that it happens as soon as possible. Are we expecting moves on that? Uh, I know that uh, Mr. Laha was saying he he would he would have hoped um, that within 24 hours they would be. Um, out of there, but that's mm. not the situation. Yeah, look, it's a very complex, uh, difficult situation. Uh, but look, uh, I have every confidence in um, our diplomats, both here and uh, overseas. And, uh, you know, everything that can be done is being done. And we can, all we can do is hope uh, for um, a satisfactory uh, and, and safe conclusion to this. 
Um, I take it you'd echo that, Louise, right now, um, not just, of course, for Irish-Palestinian people caught up in Gaza, but um, the, the, the situation that's involving, you know, 1.5 million people there right now um, is, is increasingly difficult. It is, and, you know, we already know that, that these are people who live what has been in what has been described as a, the, one of the world's largest open-air prisons. Um, there are 5,000 people dead, 2,000 children. Um, you know, I think the the only uh, sensible thing to do, the only right thing to do now is for the international community as a whole to call for a ceasefire because in when the ceasefire happens, and the ceasefire must happen, you know, when the ceasefire happens, then aid can get into Gaza, fuel can get into to power the hospitals, and indeed those people mm -hmm. who are trapped there will be able to come out. A, a ceasefire is absolutely essential at this point, and the international community should be speaking with one voice on this. We absolutely need to see the ceasefire because without the ceasefire, we're not going to be able to, to get the aid in. And I know that uh, I was looking before I came, I came out here this evening, uh, hospitals are running dangerously low. They're already, because of the blockade, dangerously low on equipment most of the time, but they're actually going to run out of power. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's, you know, for incubators, for vital life-saving machinery, all of these things need to be able to run. Without the ceasefire, it becomes increasingly more difficult to be able to do that. And I think we really need to, okay. to hear that and, and to echo the calls for that. OK, uh, um, I want to bring Oliver McTiernan in at this point. Um, the, the spat we're hearing between the, the UN chief, Antonio Guterres, calling Israel out for violations in international humanitarian law. And Israel, um, his ambassador to the UN, called on Guterres to resign. This has certainly escalated on a diplomatic level. How significant is it now that the head of the UN has made this call in front of the UN Security Council tonight and made this, these comments? I think it's very important indeed, Claire, and it's a pity it's taken two weeks and over 5,000 deaths for him to make this call. I would fully support it. Um, what he has said. But the tragedy is, while this war of words is going on, people are dying in the real war, and they're dying hundreds by every day. So the sooner we have a ceasefire, the sooner President Biden comes off the fence, and rather than just saying, don't make the same mistake as we made at 9-11, rather than recognizing that there is a collective trauma in Israel and they're acting in the sort of post-traumatic stress situation, he should recognize that and say, look, as a friend, I have to tell you, stop doing what you're doing because it will have consequences that are far reaching. But sadly, we're not hearing that from him or from any, apart from Ireland and one or two other countries, from any other European leaders. On the hostage situation, that's where your area of expertise is, Oliver. You have uh, worked with maybe some of the key players here. You believe that full ceasefire is critical for the safe passage of people out of Gaza. Now, we are hearing from Israel saying that there are over 200 hostages being held by Hamas. And as long as they hold those people, those the, the airstrikes will continue. Is it possible for any mass release of hostages in these circumstances, do you believe? Well, Claire, from what I hear, Hamas are 
willing, and I've heard this directly, to release all the civilian hostages without any preconditions. But the reality is, if you have such severe bombing and around the clock in Gaza, how can you move around with safety a significant number of people? So I would very much say that a precondition of the civilian hostages being returned to their families, which they should be, because I do think that the indiscriminate killing and indiscriminate taking of civilian hostages is totally wrong and can never be justified. But for that reason, I think they should be returned to their families. But to do it, it will take cooperation from Israel. And I think that has to, first and foremost, mean a stopping of the bombing. And behind the scenes, do you think that will is there at all um, if it means the release uh, of hostages for them to take a humanitarian pause to allow this to happen, for those hostages to be returned to their families? It's a source of great anguish in Israel. To be honest, Claire, I think the country is too traumatised. What happened had an enormous um, shock factor on the Israeli people right through the society. And it does need, therefore, um, America to act as a friend, not a supporter of them acting in this way. And I think unless, as I say, um, President Biden explicitly makes it clear that America cannot stand by any longer and see the indiscriminate slaughter of hundreds of people. I know people who have died in Gaza. Our own administrator in the center we work with um, died with his young son and young daughter. He's not Hamas. He's living a young man wanting a future for his family. He's now dead. And we had horrific pictures sent to us today. This is the reality. You can't sit on the fence and repeat mantras or mantras that may fit into your election um, you know, policies or whatever program. You have to stand for fundamental principles, international law, Geneva Convention. What I fear we see unraveling before our eyes at the moment is the whole Geneva Convention. Gaza is an occupied territory. Those who occupy a territory have a responsibility to protect the occupied, not to attack them or not to exert a sort of collective punishment because of the actions of, of some. Oliver, I want to ask you who are the potential peace brokers here? Um, you mentioned the US there, uh, who, who you say have been sort of giving arms, I suppose, and, and, and weapons to um, people who are collectively traumatised right now. Are they capable of stepping in in a meaningful capacity um, to de-escalate the situation? Well, I, I think they, I, I mean, Qatar and Egypt are doing what they can. But what they can do is communicate and facilitate. If this madness is to stop, and if we're going to save God knows how many more human lives, America has to exercise its responsibility. What I fear at the moment is we're losing the, the, the long-term consequences of the inaction of President Biden means we are actually losing not just the global south, which I fear we've lost a while, but the whole Middle East.
I was at a meeting in Muscat we had um, the week before last, just a, a, a few days after this incident on October 7th happened. I would say all the representatives, and these are senior officials from Gulf and Arab countries, all of them felt totally alienated and shocked by the inaction of the Western world, not just America, but also Europe. And there was a big rift between, I would say, the um, Arab and, and Gulf representatives there and Europeans. Yeah. They could not just understand why Europe couldn't see the excessiveness of the Israeli reaction. I just want to bring my panel in on this, um, Oliver. Martin, to you. And, you know, we know um, and we talked about it when Joe Biden visited here about Ireland's soft power um, in this situation when it comes to our relationship with the US, we clearly see as allies, uh, and the clear ties we have with the US. Is there an opportunity for Ireland here to push for an increased diplomacy, um, to, to push and to, for this call for a ceasefire, which clearly Ireland is calling for, but to date we have not here heard the US uh, intervene and call for? Yeah, well, look, we have a, a very good record uh, when it comes to uh, diplomacy internationally. And if there is uh, an appropriate role uh, for the Irish government, uh, I have no doubt that the Irish government will, will, will step up to that. I mean, what, what's going on out there is utterly horrific. Uh, what happened on the 7th of October when the van loads of Hamas turned up to a concert and literally just picked people out and shot them like ducks you know, that, that was wrong. And what's happening now in Gaza is wrong. And ultimately, uh, you know, it will be resolved by people talking to each other, by people engaging with each other, by people sitting and around that, the table. is that engagement happening, obviously, like within EU, we're, we're, we're pushing our stance there. Yeah. Is there anything happening um, behind the scenes between Ireland and the US in that regard? One would hope that there is uh, engagement behind the scenes, uh, but I certainly wouldn't be at all happy uh, uh, at the lack of effort uh, oh. so far uh, internationally. Um, and, and, you know, really and truly, what's going on on a daily basis is just terrible and it needs to stop mm. and it needs to stop now. And absolutely, whatever role, if there is a role uh, for the Irish government and our fantastically qualified uh, diplomats uh, across right. the world, absolutely, okay. uh, we should do that. Louise, do you think Ireland stands here as having any influence? Oliver mentioned it as mm. Ireland being one of the countries calling for that ceasefire, which he says is necessary for the release of hostages, for the, the for aid to come through, for lives to be saved. Yeah, um, I think it is. And I think <clears throat> the next opportunity we're going to have um, is when Antishok is at the European Council on Thursday. Thursday. Um, I am hopeful that he will be urging all of the European leaders at that meeting to uh, un come out and unequivocally support the call for a ceasefire. Claire, let's not forget, there are mothers in Gaza writing the names of their children on their legs and on their bodies so that they might be identified after an airstrike. So this is beyond a disaster or a catastrophe. This has now become a humanitarian issue. People in Gaza are running out of food. They will starve. They are running out of water. They are running into the danger of cholera. So now is the time for the international community to speak with one clear voice and call for a ceasefire now. All right, okay. Uh, Oliver, just to bring you back in, and we've, we've talked about the US role there and what Europe is capable of potentially doing. What about, you know, Hamas? Does, does it have political friends in the region? And even with this, you know, hostage situation, um, who is there to sort of broker peace their end? 
Well, I, I think, as I mentioned, that particularly Qatar has a very influential role because they've been bankrolling Gaza for the past 10 years or more. Um, also Egypt, because Egypt is the key of the Rafa crossing, you know, and things happen only if Egypt says yes or no. So I think immediately both of those countries have influence. And um, the rest of the Middle East, of course, Iran, um, but Saudi Arabia, all of the countries, uh, I think, could play an extremely important role. But I think I'd reiterate their role is limited. It will depend on President Biden fulfilling his office, fulfilling his obligations to uphold international law, a rule-based society. We've gone all out to support Ukraine. The hypocrisy that's seen in the global south of our reaction to Ukraine, uh, to Ukraine and our indifference to um, the, the situation in Gaza and the West Bank. It's, it's We're talking about an occupied Palestine. It's the, uh, it's not me that's saying that, it's the international, um, the UN recognizes the whole of Palestine, Gaza and the West Bank are occupied. That puts obligations. Now, if I may come back to Ireland's role, I, on good grounds, was told that two people in or there are two influencers in Biden's life. One is the Pope, and the second is Ireland. And I would love to see the Irish Prime Minister Taoiseach and a, a group of Irish senior ministers go fly to Washington and say to Biden, you pride on the Good Friday Agreement. The essence of the Good Friday Agreement is inclusiveness. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you applying those principles in finding a solution in the Middle East? We're trying to exclude important players who are part of the solution, not part of the problem, regardless of what happened on the 7th of October. That should not be a distraction from the reality that Hamas, as well as some of the other resistant groups, are interested part of the, the Palestinian um, cause and people. They cannot be beheaded or separated. So I'd love Ireland to put that. Also, to use our soft power. We have enormous influence in the Irish lobby in America. Remember, it was Tip O'Neill and Edward Kennedy going to um, Clinton and saying to him, if you want the Irish vote, put pressure on John Major to invite Jerry Adams over, put pressure on Major to include the Sinn Féin and other groups in the process of finding a durable solution to our, our situation in Ireland. And we know how progress was made there. Oliver McTiernan, thank you for joining us on The Tonight Show uh, tonight. Now, Thanks. coming up next, we explore the 1.5 billion euro deficit that's plaguing the health service. Now, it was a busy day at the Oireachtas Health Committee as Department of Health Secretary General Robert Watt and HSE Chief Executive Bernard Gloucester faced a grilling from politicians on deficits, demands and doctors' concerns. Well, here to discuss this further is Health Committee member Senator Martin Conway, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly and Irish Times Health Correspondent Paul Cullen. Uh, Paul, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. To come to you first, um, you were watching all of this unfold today. Now, 
they were obviously before an Oireachtas Health Committee last week as well, as questions about this spending hole continue. What new did we learn today? Yeah, I didn't think there was much that was new. Um, I mean, I can recite the figures. There's a big hole in, in the budget, as we know, 1.5 billion this year, probably another 1.3 billion next year. Um, what I thought was really interesting was the unanimity of view. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You had the head of the HSC and you had the senior civil servant in the Department of Health effectively pushing back against the government's budget. Mm-hmm. In, after a... a a uh, negotiation process in which they were involved and saying there isn't enough. And, and then you had a government TD, John Lahart, commending the head of the HSC for being ballsy, for, for repeating his, his view that there wasn't an adequate funding for next year. So it was a very clear message from the, from the committee, I think, from I think just about everybody there, that uh, the sentiment um, from, uh, certainly from opposition, as you would expect it, but also from in government and also from the high officials, mm. is that we just haven't enough and we want more money. Yeah, Bernard Gloucester was at pains to say that, you know, the HSE are not money wasters, um, saying we're not a bunch of wasters with mm. public money. And he also referred to your column, didn't yes. he? In second, which you said... For the second time. <laughs> if the HSE was an organism, it would be a flesh-eating bug. Yeah, yeah. He brought that up again. I don't know, did it do him any favours to bring up your words exactly <laughs> yeah, on that Yeah, it obviously one. rankles. But, but, <laughs> but there's, a, there's a wider issue here, and I tried to make it in that column, is that health systems everywhere are pushed to fund the needs of the population. The populations are getting older. There's modern medicine is great. It can do all sorts of things. It costs a fortune. And there has to be controls on the spending in, in health mm-hmm. or else it just uh, will spiral out of control. We have our own problems here, but that's the general background that has to be recognised. Yeah, I'm just wondering though, Martin, with all of this, and you were obviously questioning Bernard Gloucester and Robert Watt in front of the committee today. Mm. Did the government get it wrong in the budget? Well, I was disappointed that uh, Stephen Donnelly uh, didn't succeed in getting uh, more money, uh, bearing in mind that inflation costs, health inflation, uh, even electricity costs have gone up by 18%. But sure wasn't um, everyone in government, uh, yeah. you know, pushing for him not to get any extra money? Well, I, 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 you know, the minister obviously didn't go in and make a strong enough case and we're in a situation is now... It, is that a case, though, honestly, that a health minister has to go in and... and by that way, when you hear the Department of Health um, Secretary General Robert Watt and the head of the HSE 
saying exactly what the deficit is and uh, and that and that government wouldn't be aware of that. Yeah, well, of course, um, there is, there's no doubt about it that, that there are many efficiencies, I've no doubt, that can be achieved uh, in health. It must be remembered that the spending in health in the last 10 years has gone from 10 or 11 billion to 22 and a half billion. And that's with taking the disability sector out, which moved to a different department. Uh, so there's a significant amount of money being spent in health. But it must also be remembered uh, that we're still, uh, per head of population, uh, uh, spending an awful lot less on health than many other European countries. So we have a lot of catching up to do. Sure, a ho so when can that catch up happen? Yeah, well... Um, it's not just money as well. Though. That's my, my other view on this. Is, uh, the structural changes has to happen. Okay. And it is going to happen next year with the introduction of the regional health authorities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think that that's long overdue. Uh, the principles of Slauncher Care, uh, okay. where we have a properly funded public health uh, uh, service, is something that <clears throat> I, I keep fighting for and keep uh, supporting because it is the oh, only right. show in town. Okay, so the argument is that efficiencies mm. can potentially be made there, Louise. Absolutely. Um, do you think that wastage within the HSE needs to be examined? Well, I think uh, there are a few things that we know. So we know that uh, the high spend on agency and outsourcing uh, is expensive in a way that it doesn't need to be, that directly employed staff are going to be uh, much, much more cost efficient. And yet the government seem intent on pushing the outsourcing uh, agenda continuously. We know also that there are lessons that we and can... And why are they uh, doing that? I mean, is that a recruitment uh, issue Well, when there? you put in a recruitment moratorium, you don't remove the need for people to see uh, the doctors. You don't remove the, pe the need for people to go to hospital and you don't remove the need for people to avail of health services. What you do is you remove the personnel. That is a very, very inefficient way uh, to run our health service so that you have to outsource and then you're constantly running along behind an ever-growing agency bill. Mm. So where there are jobs, there should be recruitment, there should be an acknowledgement from the government and I don't buy for a moment uh, all the hand-wringing going on from uh, the government backbenchers and from government TDs and senators at this committee and other committees. They voted for the budget. They voted for the budget that throws in the towel on health that gives up effectively and that just says that's it get on with it and to, to come into this studio or any other place and attempt to blame one single minister uh, the government signed off on the budget and it was supported by the parties of government so lads yes, they're going to have yeah. to own that I mean Martin you're a senator but you're a member of a government party here yeah, but that doesn't mean I can't uh, uh, have a, a diverging view to, 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 to Minister Donnelly. Uh, to who? Over, uh, now, to who, who, who do you agree or disagree yeah. with on this? I mean, do you think that well, Stephen Donnelly should have got more money? Of course I do. But that's All right, it. So, so you that's are in agreement with him? disagreement with Pascal Donoghue. Yeah, correct. But I do, I do absolutely believe he, he should have got more money. Uh, but and I do also very much admire um, Bernard Gloucester for uh, coming out and saying what he said. Bernard Luster turned around Tusla uh, when he was C CEO of Tusla. And uh, on a positive, I actually think that he will turn around uh, the health services in this country as well because he's determined, he's focused, and he has the experience. And he says he needs more money. And, you know, yes, he does need more money. And we do, as a country, we're going to have to realise that we have to spend more money on health because we're still catching up. But without that injection of funds, without that supplementary, which has to be done and should be done instead of, you know, instead of all of this messing about will it be done, will it not, there should be a supplementary in relation to health. Without that, 
the recruitment freeze is going to be in place. Like, have they learned nothing? All right, okay. Fianna put a recruitment freeze in place and it almost destroyed the health okay. service, from which it has not recovered. And yet Fine Gael pick up the Fianna Fáil playbook and they do it again. Another recruitment freeze. It didn't work the last time and it is not going to work now. Paul, I want to ask you, um, look, we're talking, is money the answer here? Mm, and, is it? I mean, should mm. governance not be examined closer mm. as well within the HSE? the old IT systems. Um, we have whistleblowers coming out and saying, you know, when they try to send somebody in to do a major overhaul, um, you know, the systems don't link up. That's obviously a gross inefficiency that yeah. is impacting on patient care. Uh, poor hiring practices and other such criticisms yeah. of the HSA that they need to be looked at before more, more money is put into I mean, the system. Uh, like two points here. One, one is they don't know where they are at any one point. That's why they said they would take on 500 extra junior doctors this year and suddenly found that they were up at 700 and they had to put a cap on it. Um, they don't know where the spending is going until they find out that they've spent too much. They don't have, there isn't proper governance um, over a large section of the, the health service which is run by voluntary institutions which have their own boards and their own politics and everything like that. Will Slaunch of Care go towards, you know, well, not overhauling today or all of that? Not today or tomorrow. It's not going to solve this immediate problem. And, you know, while tele telephone numbers are being put out here for extra money, Nobody at that committee that I heard today said anything about duplication of services, um, about performance. They've spent 80% extra in the budget. They've 50% uh, extra in staff. And what extra have we got in performance? Um, in Martin's own neck of the woods, what did we see yesterday down in Limerick? We saw that a, a, a daily record for number. There were more patients on trolleys in Limerick on Monday than there were of beds in the, in the emergency department. Where is the sign of improvement? That's a year after the HSC sent down its crack team to sort out the problems in Limerick. And where are we at? Nowhere. Yeah, Louise, would you agree with that, that in a way, and pardon the pun, that more cash is a band-aid over, over the, the deeper problems within the HSE that need to be looked at yeah, first? Yeah, but see, here's the thing. More cash is absolutely needed because uh, because otherwise they're, they're not going to be able to function on a deficit, right? So put that to one side. But look at, you know, 12 years of Fine Gael in government. Where's the single integrated financial management system? Where's the single integrated waiting list management system? These are proposals that Sinn Féin have been making for years. And yet the government just keep going and keep going and keep going and hope that somehow things will come good. They won't. There are 800,000 people waiting on a health procedure, waiting on an operation, waiting on a hospital appointment. That figure keeps growing. They keep breaking records in the Midwest and in, in other hospitals. Okay, so so there, does, there does need to be... So what they need to do is they need to put enough money in to end the recruitment freeze. That is an incredibly inefficient way to run the health service under an recruitment freeze. But, recruitment freeze. but they also need to end the over-reliance on agency and outsourcing. We need will a, they, will a time the ending of a recruitment of freeze do that? Because essentially then, or is there actually a recruitment crisis that you can't get the staff even if you end the freeze? Again, the 12 years of Fine Gael in government have brought us to the stage where the health service is a very unattractive place to work. So that does need to be turned around. There are things that you can do. You can make it very easy and fast to recruit graduates. You can give those graduates a reason to stay because at the moment, all the government give them are, are reasons mm. to leave. It, they can't get the jobs when they do. When there's a vacancy there, it's taken three, four months to be able to actually recruit somebody. You know, all of these things are inefficiencies within the system that can be tackled. But if the, uh, the blunt instrument of a recruitment moratorium or a recruitment freeze is used again, 
it mm. will damage the health service. So we need to look at that, but we also need to look at getting out from under the outsourcing and the agency yeah. staff. That bill grows year on year, and the yeah. only thing All that's right. growing along yeah. with it Mark, are the no, waiting no, lists. Mark, no, I, want to, I yeah. want to bring you in on that. Yeah, uh, specifically, I, just, uh, I suppose, on staffing and the well, recruitment freeze. Right, bottom line is that's what's kind of affecting yeah. patients and, and, and waiting lists, which there's are 20, There's 22,500 more people working in the, in the health services in this country now than there was this time last year. So, I mean, if it's that unattractive a place to work, yet there is an extra 22,500 people. There's actually 40% uh, more working in the health service uh, now than there was four or five years ago. Are more ago. staff required? Um, and, and, are more staff uh, of required? Of course there are, yeah. Okay. But, but, but I make it, there are tens of thousands of people every week uh, that are getting a good, uh, uh, top quality service uh, through our health service. And I think that's important too. Well, yes, yes, it has its yeah. challenges. And uh, no more than the situation on in Limerick. I don't know what's going on there. Um, there's been reports, there's been crack teams sent in, there's been ministerial there's, visits, there's and, 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 and yet, and yet we're That's in a situation where the, where, where, where the figures are, are, are at record high. Yes, there, there's going to be, uh, the 96-bed the block is going to be up and running by the middle of next year, and we need two more 96-bed blocks. Right, so, so we've, but, a but, but to 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 be, we've a winter to go. We have a winter to go, before all of that. Oh, yes. And I, I what, question... What do you I, fear, I question what Brun do you fear uh, you know, the Limerick Emergency Department and the hospital is going to look like over the winter Yeah, well, months. I questioned uh, Bernard Loster today on what arrangements are in place with the private hospitals, and he gave a, a very clear assurance that uh, a deal is done uh, and that there will be availability uh, when the surge does happen. Right, so we have to hospitals. fall back on private hospitals... Uh, to help well, uh, sure, we need to. temporarily resolve this yeah. situation. Unfortunately, but, yes, that right, is the reality. What does, what does that say about what's happening in, in Limerick uh, specifically? But, you know, it's not a problem that's unique to Limerick, is it, the, the numbers on No, bodies? because mention was made. Um, there's a lot of concern, up, for example, up in Letterkenny, um, raised by both local GPs and consultants there about the issues around that hospital. And there have been quite a series of of uh, issues around the hospital in recent years. And um, we were told that the same team that I was mentioning is going to go up to Letterkenny to sort out the issues there. So sticking plaster, yeah, absolutely. What I can predict is, I mean, you know, this government is not the first to face these issues. This is not the first. This is going back 50 years. You know, uh, as Gary Murphy, the political scientist, said at the weekend, you know, if you go back to John O'Connell, if anybody can remember back, yeah. and Charlie Hawhey, these kind of issues were pl played out. What's going to happen is, the government or the deeper or whoever finance will pay out enough money um, they th as they think is sufficient to get the, the health system through winters and things like that, but not so much as to satisfy all the needs and all the, all the demands for funding in health because those, those demands add up to so much and it's seen, oh, as, right. it's seen as unfeasible. Okay. So it's going to be a repetition of previous history, I'm afraid. Uh, guaranteed we will be back here again talking all about it. My thanks to Paul Cullen, who's joined us in that conversation. Coming up next, do women have less leisure time than men? We discuss. Welcome back now. A new study carried out by the EU has identified a decline 
in gender equality, particularly in Ireland. The research cites a lack of leisure time for Irish women as a major contributor and also explores work, health and money. Well, joining Senator Martin Conway and TD Louise O'Reilly is Irish Times journalist Jen Hogan. Jen, you're very welcome along Thanks, to the programme. That's one of the major talking points in all of this. We talk about uh, leisure time, but it's time for sport, it's time for culture, um, that we are having less of that time than we did a decade ago. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's really surprising. I think if you speak to most women, they'll tell you they're under huge pressure. Um, I think society is still functioning as though women are at home. There's still that expectation for women to carry the bulk of caring roles. Um, they're holding down jobs. They're still, if you're a mother, you still have the responsibility at home, perhaps elderly parents to care for. And even looking at the professions that we just had, that conversation that women are going into, it's largely that caring profession. We're really hammering home that women are responsible for caring, you know, and that's both in the workplace, but also outside. So they have this additional responsibility. We've got really good, I suppose, at encouraging our girls to go into STEM and look at, looking at different options to them later in life for careers. But we're not so good about um, challenging boys on this and, and encouraging boys to go into the caring profession. If we really want to flip that script and, mm -hmm. and get real equality, we have to start encouraging boys and men into caring roles too so that everybody sees it as their responsibility and women get a little bit of time back to themselves. All right. Do you think that would happen or is it always likely, I suppose, the big question, to fall for women, uh, uh, fall to women as it has uh, since, the, since the beginning of time. But what's interesting about this is yeah. it's actually worsened. And I wonder, has that changed with you know, remote work, and more, women back, in, more the... women back in the workplace and then trying to, and I hate to use the word juggle, but, but having to do it all. Absolutely. And if you look at the dates, really, it's since the pandemic, things have deteriorated. And that's largely because the pandemic set women back years when they closed schools and they closed childcare facilities and they closed playgrounds and, and it was difficult to get um, summer camps open. And they put women largely in a position that they had to choose between, if they were mothers, they had to choose between their children and they had to choose between their jobs. And a lot of women, I suppose, stepped back, maybe went on career breaks, mm -hmm. maybe went part-time and then really struggled to get back to the case where they weren't responsible for all these things again. So it has set women back an awful lot. I don't know if we're going to change things without really tackling the situation around boys, I think, and, and men and getting them to realise their responsibility there. And if you even look back, if you look at teenagers and the idea of babysitting and things, it literally goes back to even there. Lots of teenage girls will babysit. You ask somebody about teenage boys, and I've asked parents about this before, I've asked, and it's women largely who will mm -hmm. come back and say they're not comfortable with the idea of, say, teen boys uh, babysitting. So that idea of them being in that caring role and taking on that additional responsibility, sometimes it's for sinister reasons, but more often than not, it's just a belief that they don't think they're capable. And so yeah. we're very much hammering this home. We're not actively encouraging yeah. boys into teaching you know that and takes, nursing. That takes huge uh, cultural shift. And, it is. And, and, it's, and it's, it does. It, it's funny because we think we've come so far, mm. Louise, mm. but 2023, have we really? Well, I'm the uh, daughter of a working mam, but I was the only child in my primary school who had, when I, when I started, who had a mother who worked um, full time. My daughter also is, uh, is a working mother. So, I mean, you know, as I say, more of us and we might change the world, except that we're too busy just mm -hmm. uh, doing everything else. But I think, you know, we need to look at uh, practical things that can be done. 
like a massive cultural change. Yes, that's absolutely necessary and, and we should all be encouraging that. But even small things that the government could do, like bringing forward a, a legal right to disconnect. So that impacts on everybody. Every worker in yeah, the state who say, can't turn off their device. Men as well as women. It will, it will. But what benefits all workers also benefits women workers. So we know that women are disproportionately uh, overrepresented in areas of low pay. That's another thing that we can do is ensure that there is more gender balance in the high paying jobs because if you earn less per hour you're going to have to work more just to simply earn the same we know that the gender pay gap is very real and you know now the companies have to publish that information albeit only only large companies at the moment that kind of information is is important but i think you know when you read statistics like 10 percent of female workers in in ireland aged 16 to 74 managed to get out of the house for sporting cultural or leisure activities that, I mean, we compare very unfavourably 29% of women elsewhere and 24% of Irish men. So if that, that should serve as a, as a wake-up call, really, for us to start getting real on, uh, on issues around gender equality, because things like being able to get out for a leisure activity, for sports, for culture, they're important. They're, they're important. Mm. To, they, they make you rounded as a, as a human yeah. being. You know, I mean, all work and no play absolutely right. does, uh, is not good, you know. But I think we are, for as long as we are overrepresented in um, areas of low pay, we will find ourselves always having to work more just to earn the same as, uh, as, as men in, you know, and that's why we have the gender pay gap and that's why that needs to be addressed. But I would say to, to women workers, join a union, get active in your mm -hmm. trade union and uh, vote right. for left-wing parties that support workers. Martin, rights. I have to come to you as the only man yeah. in the room. Um, <laughs> what's your take on all of this? Apparently, you know, men, it's men who get more time to go out golfing, meeting their mates and enjoying a bit of free time. And uh, I think what's yeah. interesting about this from, I suppose, Ireland's point of view is that we're taking a step backwards rather than forwards in this regard. Oh, ab absolutely. And I suppose um, as the only man on the panel, I agree with everything that's well, been said. you have to say that. And, <laughs> and I, I also come from a house where my mother worked all her life as well. And, um, you know, you, you see the sacrifices uh, that, are made, that were made and are still being made by women uh, up and down the country who have to work. Uh, and uh, Some choose to work, but others have to work for financial reasons. Um, I think there's a lot that can be done. Uh, there's a lot that the government should do. Uh, I know, like I, I, well, I know that what, what, what was done uh, in terms of companies having to publish their gender pay scales, like uh, that's a, at least it's a, it's a step in the right direction. But certainly we need to be looking at bringing in legislation where people would have the right to disconnect, where, you know, we, we put a lot of funding into sports clubs, but I don't think we do enough of encouraging of private companies uh, to, to engage in sporting activities. I mean, it's not just the government. can uh, The government have a, a leadership role mm -hmm. in resolving this, but corporations, companies, pr private enterprise, they have a role to play in it as well. One other thing I'd say is uh, it, it, it is the case for women but also for people with disabilities uh, who, who are out working, they, their leisure time is, is very, very little mm -hmm. because they have to work so hard uh, in order to keep the job, to perform within the job. So this legislation would help women, but it would also help people with disabilities. And as a matter of fact, it would help all society. So I think there's a, a big job of work to be done yeah, what's uh, in this area. With the legislation that you're talking about. Well, um, I know that there, the, the, the whole thing of remote working uh, and that legislation is, is pending. But I think we need to we need to come together. Uh, right. It needs to be. It, it's not a political football. It's a political no. issue that should have consensus across the house. 
uh, Jen, on this, I suppose the consequences and the impact of all of this on, you know, a younger generation, if you're hoping for change and hoping for progress, uh, what, what do you think the consequences are? It's a bit, it makes depressing reading. I mean, I don't think the figures are great for many. They're significantly higher than women, but even the fact that only 24% of men are getting out. But if you see young women coming up and they're saying, this is what lies ahead of me, I will have so little time to myself. It's very off-putting, but it is something that with that cultural shift and with determination, that we, I suppose we can change. It is going to take action. It is going to take yeah. the right to disconnect. You know, we're talking about that and that makes a difference. But we also have to look even at other aspects with, within our lives. You know, we, we operate as a society that still, like I said, thinks that women are at home. When they come in from work, they're taking over things like homework. You know, they're getting, it, it's them who largely pick up with the children's homework. Your bugbear, Jen, and bug I know bear, it is. And the domestic chores and things like that. Uh, still and briefly, them. like something that just, just points to it, your daughter's gone into law yeah. and you're worried about the impact that I hope, have her I hope I will the think line. the same about my sons, but I have one, one daughter and six sons and my daughter um, did her law degree and, and, and I worried for her. My, my first thought as a working mom was, God, that's not very family friendly. That was my immediate thing. I hope I will think that way about my sons. I hope I will. I think I will. But I know immediately because I know the pressures mm -hmm. that are on me as a working mother and uh, all the different commitments that there are outside. And I, okay. I fear for her it'll be the same. OK, lots to consider with that report. We're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to Martin Conway, to Louise O'Reilly and to Jen Hogan. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. But you do have a right to disconnect from all the late team here. Good night. Take care.